Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Niranjan Balasubramanian, who is an assistant professor starting on the tenure track position this fall at Stony Brook University. Congrats. Niranjan has done a bunch of work on extracting information from text and trying to reason about it. Niranjan, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Matt, for having me, and thanks, Bobby, for having me. This is uh, exciting. Yeah, today we wanted to talk about a recent paper that you published at AAAI 2018 called Event Representations with Tensor-Based Compositions. And this work is, I guess, a continuation of a, a long line of work that's been kind of on the outskirts of NLP, but has been looked at for quite a while on script learning and um, event sequence induction kinds of stuff. So Niranjan, can you give us a, a, a description of like what's going on here, what the setting is? Yeah, I think uh, I, I like the characterization that you made that, you know, sort of on the outskirts of uh, NLP, uh, but I would sort of say it's uh, straddles NLP and general AI concerns uh, the space of trying to model uh, event sequences. So there is a line of work, uh, right, in information extraction that people are interested in trying to extract information about events, uh, especially when they appear in news articles. Um, one of the sort of stumbling blocks, one of the bottlenecks in this space is sort of figuring out what to extract. So that's sort of the central challenge there. Um, and then figuring out how to provide examples on what you want to extract. Um, so from that viewpoint, uh, you can think about uh, this, uh, this problem space as um, a way of providing automatically uh, some canonical descriptions of different types of events. So one example that I often talk about uh, comes from uh, Nate Chambers' original work in 2008 is this thing about, you know, there is an arrest event happening or an arrest scenario happening. What are the kinds of information would you like to know about this scenario? Um, sort of two key uh, types of information perhaps are, you know, which entities are participating in this event and what are the specific actions or roles that they are taking, uh, playing in this particular event? So that's sort of from an uh, information extraction angle on what types of information they want to extract about events. So that's sort of you know one uh, NLP angle to this problem. The broader angle, I think, coming from uh, the AI space, sort of starts from you know this canonical example people give, starting from you know Shankian scripts, where the idea is how do we build um, understanding of commonly occurring situations. What kinds of data structures do you need to pack this information and how do you acquire this information automatically? So Shankian scripts were sort of proposed as a way to you know, build uh, or equip AI agents with knowledge that they would need to reason about uh, common situations, whether these situations are described in text or whether the AI agent is actually out in the world. Uh, the idea is uh, how do these agents reason about situations. So that's sort of the AI angle. So we can delve a little bit more specific into this if that serves as a broad brush introduction. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think another thing people might be more familiar with is FrameNet. So yeah. FrameNet here is a resource that specifies a whole bunch of different kinds of like atomic events that could happen, uh -huh. like a buying event or a selling event. Right. Uh, and those might actually be related in some sense. And then what what typical participants are. And I think a good way to think of this notion of scripts is a, a canonical sequence of 
frames. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's uh, that's a fair characterization. In fact, uh, I really like this paper that uh, Ben Van Dermey and I think uh, Francis Ferrero, I think they had a couple of years back, where they sort of propose a unification of the different frame-like structures you could get out of text. So starting from syntactic uh, you know, predicate argument structures to more thematic ones to frame niche style frames and to these narrative frames, which is what scripts uh, in my head are. Um, so I think all these things, I think these come from some um, original sort of characterization that Minsky gave in the 1950s. So there's this notion of Minsky frames where he sort of talks about these four different uh, sort of varying levels of packing information about uh, situations that are described in text. So I think, yeah, that's a very good characterization. I would say, like, you can think of frame net frames as being sort of describing uh, atomic events and the structure of the entities and the roles they play. And then uh, the scripts can be thought of as sequences of these frames that hold together uh, in some discourse structure describing the scenario. And let's say we had some resource, hypothetically, that contained. I don't know, some like large fraction of any possible narrative frame or event sequence. Um, what, how would this actually be useful to some kind of autonomous system or, or NLP system? One example uh, that I often give is uh, trying to read between the lines when you're reading news events. Um, so one example can be, let's suppose you're reading a news story that says, uh, you know, Abdi Gudain was killed in an airstrike. Um, yeah, let's say some uh, Al Shabab uh, announced a successor. Um, you know, some X. Okay, so now I can ask you a question: Who was the uh, former leader of Al Shabab? Right, that's not explicitly mentioned in text, but we sort of know how the sort of uh, real world scenarios happen. That if uh, the leader of a particular organization. Uh, is removed for whatever reason, then you have a successor taking that place. So even though the information is not explicitly said in text, we have we sort of bring our um, expectation for how these scenarios unfold and sort of fill in the missing lines there. So you can you can uh, expect information extraction systems that are augmented with these clips to be able to provide you answers about what is not explicitly said in the text itself. So that's one application. Um, another possible application is um, uh, you know, sort of being able to say, can you summarize a, a news uh, article? So you, you sort of get a news article about a particular event. Um, how do you know which pieces of things to talk about and extract? Right? So if you, again, are able to map this event to some kind of a script that you know about, then it sort of gives you an expectation for what things to talk about by appealing to elements in the script. So that's another NLP-like experience. Uh, application yeah, the first point you mentioned uh, sounds very relevant to a lot of work on uh, common sense understanding, uh, which AI2 is focusing a lot on, but also other places. Um, seems to be an important uh, problem everyone is trying to tackle, and this this is an interesting angle uh, to look at it. Uh, uh, one thing that I, I'm wondering about is uh, how fluid these scripts are. Uh, do you think of them as discrete uh, objects, or do you think of them as like uh, versatile, hard to like, uh, basically infinite, uh, infinite number of possibilities to of combining uh, events? 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. So this, my thinking on this has uh, shifted or evolved uh, with the, along with the arrival of deep learning based continuous thinking a little bit. So earlier we used to, I mean, at least I used to think about being able to, um, you know, uh, produce scripts or schemas that, you know, broadly are representative of any use corpus that you have. So that's your world, as long as you're, you're producing scripts that characterize that world in some reasonable um, in level of coverage, I was happy with it. But then um, I think now, sort of rather than thinking about script knowledge as something static, uh, now I think we're equipped to think about them as sort of functional knowledge pieces. So what do I mean by this? So we have an upcoming paper, hopefully in EMNLP, uh, where we are talking about how we could um, have a generative model that can uh, take any particular sequence of events that you are saying is happening right now and make predictions about what is going to happen in the future. Okay, and there's a lot of controllable script generation. So if you imagine, um, if you imagine that the model has learned various types of scripts, now it can actually extrapolate to a new situation that it hasn't that it hasn't necessarily seen in the training data. So I think we can think about uh, infinite possibilities here with this model to the you know uh, limited to the amount of generalization that our current um, models can give us, right? But we definitely now I'm thinking about them uh, not as completely you know, on a finite list of discrete structures, but as something that's continuous where you can, uh, with some much more fluid where you have more ways to control uh, what what is going to happen later by sort of changing the beginning conditions, so to speak, of this scenario. I hope that sort of makes sense. If you feel like I can give you an example that just to quickly illustrate that point, so one thing that we um, that we can do now is to say, um, let's suppose you have a uh, protest that is happening, right? Um, people are marching, they're carrying slogans, etc. Uh, now in the real world, this protest can unfold in multiple ways starting from that point, right? If somebody starts throwing rocks, it can turn into a violent protest. Um, if you know if they if they have a regular if they had a plan and they stuck to their plan, there was no violence. You know, it becomes a peaceful protest and sort of, you know, reaches the end point. So there are sort of two possibilities for scripts here. So uh, what we can do now is to take models, uh, sort of starting points for, you know, a protest being happening, and then you can say, give me a script or tell me what is going to happen if this particular thing happens, which is that somebody's throwing rocks, what is going to happen next, right? So we are able to, at least we have a semblance of a model that can um, start to account for these Minor variations in the in the expected uh, unfolding of the event. So, uh, what I wonder at this point then, FrameNet and similar resources. Fra FrameNet is great in that it gives a, a nice detailed accounting of um, a particular kind of event, but it's pretty limited in that its coverage uh, lacks a whole lot of things that are like part of the human experience. And so, there are lots of events that you might want to describe in FrameNet that you just can't because there's nothing there. Um, similarly, if you take this, uh, the frame net, frame net approach to defining narrative frames, you're going to have a hard time, uh, capturing in uh, the, the kinds of fluid, non-discrete events you were just talking about. So how, what, how then do we model this? Like what, what's the approach to learning the set of possible frames? What's going on here? Yeah, so I think um, at least sort of um, go going back to this particular paper about uh, where we show tensor-based compositions, I think we 
we address this problem somewhat, like in the sense that what we are saying is, to the extent you are able to give me a word embedding level knowledge about a verb, right? We can use that to, you know, to generalize or to make predictions about what is going to happen next. Even if we hadn't seen, uh, we, even if we hadn't used that particular verb during our training. So we're not necessarily limited by the, the kinds of uh, events we saw in training. So the, I think the generalization, the key generalization there is as long as you're able to give us a new verb, we can extract a uh, tensor-based representation of events involving that verb, even if we haven't seen it in the training data. So that sort of gets at this a little bit, but there are many, um, so in the, in the general sense of the problem, there are many uh, events perhaps that we don't even see described in text. So that is sort of still beyond the scope of what we're looking at. Um, one thing I, I mean that gets at a bigger issue, which I'm very interested in looking at in the future, is how do you combine knowledge you can derive from grounding of sort of real experiences of agents in the real world and connect them to what we know in text, right? So there is clearly um, some of the things that the AI2 Alexandria project is ta tackling, right, in terms of common sense, things we can't really directly extract from text. How do we connect them with things that we can extract from text? So I think that's a bigger gap. But yeah, so I think there's still, even within the text scope, I think we could, uh, if we frame our problems carefully, I think we can um, we can uh, aim to, to to generalize beyond the sort of set of events that we have seen in training data. Yeah, so I guess uh, if I can rephrase a little bit, your general approach is let's take a big pile of text, find event sequences in it, and try to group them together somehow such that we can get a model that seeing some initial sub-event, uh, so some initial event in a sequence can predict what's going to come next. Like it doesn't ever have... Right. The, nowhere in this model can you like enumerate all of the f all of the narrative frames that it's captured, in, unless I'm misunderstanding. But I'm, I'm just trying to do some kind of like clustering yeah. or s some some like yeah. let's group things together and get a model that can reproduce the sequences that I saw in text and hope that that gives me some notion that something like a narrative frame, even though it'd be hard for a human to inspect. Yeah. So. I think uh, the the clustering or this grouping is implicit in the model, but you can ask the model to generate. Um, um, so so one way we evaluated it in the paper is to actually say, given this uh, starting seed uh, that sort of describes a, a, a scenario that starts with this particular event, uh, can you tell me what is likely to happen? In this particular paper, we don't have a lot of controllability about how the script should proceed, but the model just gives its its nearest neighbors, so to speak, once you have the event representation. And then we could, you know, we do some massaging of the arguments, and then out comes something that looks like a, a, at least an event schema, which is basically a set of uh, relation triples with some argument overlap uh, between these, uh, these these tables. Now that you could claim, right, is sort of you know, one instance, if you were to enumerate all the schemas that the model knows about, right? So you can basically give it various seed starting points and then it will give you uh, different schemas. So there is really no uh, explicit clustering uh, of scenarios or explicit clustering of events, but it's sort of implicit in the model, but you can inspect the model to get, get at this. Could you elaborate a little bit on how uh, the schema looks like? Yeah, um, so a schema is really, in our case, a subject uh, relation and an object triple. It consists of these triples. Okay. Um, so 
we would um, so we we can do a couple of uh, basic generating schemas. So uh, you can start with a seed triple where you have a specific subject and a specific object. So meaning you can say something like police arrested John. Right, so that could be a starting point for your schema, and then the model will start producing um, other um, relation triples that are likely to happen if somebody gets arrested. Right, so you get a list of these triples, but now the uh, triples uh, can contain perhaps uh, different uh, grounded entities. So we, this is something that we did not explicitly address in the paper. What we did was a basic hack to say uh, in the embedding space, are these entities similar to each other? And we do some course hack to, to figure out which slot should be co-referring to the same entity. So at the end of this process, what we get is a schema that looks something like this. Um, X arrested Y, and then you would say something like Y faces charges, um, and then Y uh, denies claims, etc. Actually, you should get these generalized uh, list of triples that we cut off at some point and claim that as a, a schema. So if I can summarize the discussion so far, I think we've, we've done a good job motivating why you might want to care about frames or nar narrative frames, what line of work this falls in. And then moving to like the specific contribution of your paper, your setting is I'm going to take a bunch of text, I'm going to extract events, what we'll call events, which we're really just representing as subject, verb, object, triples. Um, quick side note, what if there's no object? Do you also count sub like in, in intransitive verbs, subject, verb, null? So, yeah, so we ignore okay. them at this point. So, so we have a bunch of subject, verb, object, triples. Uh, and then I'm going to take these events and try uh, in sequence in a large corpus and try to learn a representation of these events such that I can easily extract out narrative chains from them. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so can you tell yeah. us about how you learn the representation of the events? Yeah, so, right, so the idea being we want to produce an embedding or a representation of a of an event, which is, as you said, is a triple. Now, right, uh, uh, it's 2018, our starting points are word embeddings, right? So uh, for each of these elements, we have word embeddings, and we just need to figure out a function that combines these individual word embeddings to give us the event embedding. Now, there have been a couple of uh, ways that uh, this function has been explored. One is using a regular feedforward network, because you just have these three fixed elements in our embedding, so you can just have a couple of feed-forward layers and produce an event embedding. So that's sort of basic thing to apply. That's some related work has looked at this. Um, there's also uh, looking at this like an, um, as a sequence of events. So you sort of uh, mark each entry. You say you have your subject, uh, and followed by your predicate, followed by the object, and then you get another event, and its subject, its predicate, and its object, and so on. So you can think of this as a sequence of events which uh, naturally can be encoded using um, uh, some kind of an RNN, uh, usually using some kind of an LSTM. So there have been sort of these two approaches to do this before. Um, one, uh, so the, the sort of primary motivation for the specific idea we had, which is using tensors to produce this composition, is that we noticed that these, um, at the, sort of a, at a core screen, even though these models are infinitely powerful, they largely seem to be just doing some kind of additive compositions, meaning they produce a transformation of the subject into some space, they produce a transformation of the um, 
predicate and then sort of these are added together right with, with some gating and whatnot but at the end of the day it's still uh, an additive composition and the issue that comes up is that uh, they don't they fail to sort of distinguish between uh, usages of predicates in different contexts so our idea was to say let's use uh, tensor based compositions which give us a way to account for the interactions between all three elements uh, in the triple. So meaning um, if the subject or the object slightly changes, then that should actually result in a you know big change in the final event embedding. Maybe I sort of went into why we chose the uh, specific idea as well, but that's sort of the starting point for me, why we sort of looked at this density-based composition. Yeah, and that's great. You had a you had a great example in your paper where she threw a football evokes a very different kind of event than she threw a bomb, which only differs in the object. And so subject predicate are the same. Uh, if you're taking some kind of additive or averaging kind of model, you might think that she threw a football is similar in some sense to she threw a bomb, but they're very, very different kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, so that's, uh, th there are, uh, examples like this that I actually uh, even looked at when we were uh, producing the this sort of discrete count based models early on. So one of the other examples we were thinking is where um, you might have you know fire spreading to a neighborhood and fire spreading to a forest. Um, these are still uh, these are still very similar events in the, in the sense that there is fire happening, right? But um, they are really distinct contexts because fire spreading in a forest is very different implications than fire spreading in a neighborhood. Right? So you might talk about buildings getting damaged and maybe victims, whereas in the forest, maybe you just talk about the uh, size of the area that gets damaged and you know the, the control mechanisms can be different and so on. So this, uh, this sort of core issue of um, disambiguation, the same predicates get used in different contexts, this sort of gets at the word sense type uh, issue, but for, for script level problems. And so then your main contribution here is a new way of parameterizing this model such that you're handling these uh, interactions in a, in a smarter way. Can you tell us about exactly how you do that what, yeah, so, without getting into too much low-level math? Sure. Um, so the I think the, the way to the, uh, the starting point is really, let's go back to that example, she threw football and she threw bomb. Um, what you want is some kind of a conjunctive semantics, right? meaning every element should you know contribute uh, to the final representation, carefully, it shouldn't have this additive effect. So one way to do this is right, readily go in with a multiplicative interaction between all the elements in your uh, in your triple. So the sort of tensor-based composition is a sort of a mediated way of producing this, you know, some parameterized way of producing this representation, as you mentioned. Um, so one way to think about uh, tensor-based composition is that you have once you have a tensor that let's say represents a particular predicate, right? You can feed it uh, two vectors, which is going to be our uh, subject and object. And this tensor, there is some operation there, a tensor-based contraction operation, which produces another embedding, which now represents uh, the semantics of the entire event. Right? So it represents the semantics of the predicate, subject, and the object together. If you inspect that contraction operation, you will see that every element in our embeddings are sort of multiplied together with uh, some entries in the predicate. So you have this multiplicative interaction that we want. Now, the challenge though is how do you get these predicate tensors, right? So the tensors, uh, the way at least we've set this up is they are basically um, 
um, going to be uh, you know proportional to the size of your input dimension. So you're going to have a huge set of parameters that you need to learn for every predicate, which means you need to have seen many, many examples to get predicate-specific tensors. Right? So there's been some work on this before, um, and there have been some approximations to this. But I think our key uh, uh, insight or something that made us think, okay, this is perhaps doable, is sort of observing that, look, we already have some knowledge about these predicates in terms of word embeddings. Why not start from there? So we have some information about the predicates and the embeddings. Can we turn that into um, you know, a predicate tensor? So that's really where the sort of uh, uh, central idea comes, uh, comes up. Um, uh, so Noah Weber, my student, uh, came up with, uh, so we, we were discussing to say, okay, how do we infuse this? And the, sort of we came up with the first uh, way we can think of in terms of accomplishing this goal, right? Which is to infuse information in the predicate to the, and turn it into a tensor. So we ended up having uh, what he calls a base tensor and a scaling tensor. Uh, the base tensor sort of can be thought of as a canonical tensor that, you know, that just describes what a predicate does in general. So you can initialize this, uh, you know, predicate, uh, the base tensor, and then you have a scaling tensor, which is, I think, what takes our predicate tensor and sort of uh, takes that information in the predicate embedding and infuses it into this base tensor. So without getting into the math, it's, I think basically those are the two functions that these tensors accomplish. And the, at the end, what you get is the information that's packed into the predicate uh, is now turned into a tensor. Um, and then once you have these tensors, now we can produce uh, embeddings. But the, the whole the whole process is now, um, you know, we don't have to learn predicate-specific tensors. Right? So we, we reduce the problem to just learning two parameters for two tensors. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think that was uh, about as clear as you can get in audio. Uh, <laughs> if listeners want more detail, you can go look at the paper. Um, so can you tell us about how you train all of the parameters of this model? What's yeah. your learning objective? Yeah, so right, our goal, the sort of uh, tensors that we learn uh, are supposed to produce good event representations. Um, and for this purpose, right, as soon as you want to train, then you need to define what a good event representation is. Um, we sort of starting from the objective for producing scripts, so that was sort of a long you know, that's, that's our uh, big goal, is to produce uh, scripts. So given that, uh, one objective that we can uh, define is, um, are these event representations able to predict what other events are going to happen in the future? And so that becomes a natural predict event objective that we can uh, come up with. Uh, another one could be, you know, given this event uh, that, is, that you extracted from a sentence, can you predict other words, uh, meaning other uh, important information that sort of complete this event can can it predict that it's sort of more like a language modeling type of an objective. So we use those two types of objectives to train uh, these uh, tensor-based models. And how well does it work? Well, um, it seems to work better than those uh, sort of couple of baseline models we we've tried. So the, we've evaluated the uh, representations um, using some existing. Um, event-related tasks, as well as for uh, testing whether they're able to produce some reasonable schemas. Um, so we evaluated on this task called transitive sentence similarity, which is basically, just, uh, you can think of this as um, having a couple of uh, events or simple sentences, and you're trying to measure if these sentences are semantically similar in, in some sense. So if you're producing a reasonable 
event representation, then it should be able to distinguish, do well in this task. But this task necessarily isn't that hard, uh, or it doesn't really evaluate one of the core capabilities of our task. So we created this uh, subset, which we call as hard similarity, with the express purpose of testing whether the model can distinguish these uh, predicate usage differences in different contexts. So we give, uh, so let me give an example, maybe it's easy. Um, so you can come up with event, you can come up with event pairs. Uh, one example is, um, um, you know, let's let's take the sheet through bomb again. Right? So you have sheet through bomb and sheet through football. Right? So you can see that these two uh, event triples have two elements in common. It's just the object that's different. Right? Um, so these two uh, event pairs are on the surface level uh, highly similar, but semantically they come from a different um, sort of uh, uh, scenario space. So uh, this is a hard example. Um, uh, another version of the hard example is where you have uh, two event pairs, uh, let's say, you know, um, sheet through a football um, or and something like you know, uh, Jane uh, made a pass, right? So both of these are probably semantically similar in that they're probably referring to the same event, plus they're also both in the sporting context. So they're lexically very dissimilar. All of the elements are different, uh, but they, they are similar. So we created... Um, uh, event pairs like this, and then we tested uh, our model and some of the existing ways of doing this. Uh, and on this model, the, on, on this particular task, uh, the tensors actually do uh, much better. And sort of, I think, shows that the tensors are able to capture these uh, differences in predicate usage. But this this kind of evaluation just looks at single events in isolation. Mm-hmm. Right. And what you I, I think what you really care about are these narrative chains. Yeah. So how do you evaluate that kind of work? So one thing we did is uh, also evaluate in terms of the narrative close task. So there are many variants of this. Um, so, by the way, uh, Nate Chambers, uh, who's also uh, part of this project and sort of with whom we've been collaborating over the last two years on this work, um, he has an extreme dislike for uh, how the narrative close task has veered away from its original goal, but it's an automatic uh, evaluation where you basically have a set of events that have been extracted from text and you hide one of the events and you ask your model if it's able to predict this event, right? So that gets a some automatic way of um, evaluating this uh, uh, model's ability to produce event sequences. Um, and so, we, sorry, one sec. Is, is this essentially the same as like, you can imagine a notion of event perplexity. So just like yeah. we have word word level perplexity for language models, you're essentially saying what's my perplexity on predicting subsequent events? Is that what's going on? Yeah. So yeah. So I think they're equivalent. It's just that the measuring uh, the measures used are different. They're not necessarily perplexity that's being used, but the idea is still the same. Um, yeah, so on this task, again, uh, the uh, the predicate uh, this tensor approach works uh, better uh, than prior additive models. Um, we did some cleanup of the narrative close task um, to try and so one of the things that plague this automatic narrative close is that uh, it's usually dominated by frequent words like said and tell and so on, which is not very informative. Um, so we do some filtering to remove those. Uh, we also did some manual inspection of the uh, sets that we evaluate on and remove um, 
noises and extraction errors, uh, stuff like this. So we have a cleaned up portion of that task where we evaluate and it's sort of a multiple choice evaluation there. But we also evaluated the model for its ability to produce event schemas. So we have a very simple method for producing event schemas given an event representation. So if you give us a starting point for your schema or a script, we then you know produce a representation of it and in the embedded space, we collect its uh, nearest neighbors and then we rank them. And then we, as I said earlier, you can sort of massage the entities so that you produce um, something that looks like uh, a narrative script. And we manually evaluated the scripts that we can create this way uh, as against uh, as opposed to scripts that you can create with other forms of producing event representations. So the script represent script generation procedure stays the same, but the event representations uh, we use are different, and we compare the models with manual evaluation there, and we see some gains there. Um, I think uh, there's definitely uh, more to be done in that space. I can talk about that more if you. And how do you do the inference for the closed task? Uh, so you have a few events before and after, and you'd like to predict what's in the middle. So how do you do actually the actual inference here? Um, so in this case, we sort of... Um, uh, let me make sure I'm saying the right thing here. Um, so there are two ways to do this. Right? So one is to, uh, with our objective, uh, um, the objective function basically... Uh, you know, says that can we learn uh, tensors that actually are predictive of neighboring events or neighboring words, um, but you also get a representation. So you can either use the full model to produce the um, to produce the the next uh, event, um, or you can take the representations you get and then you can look for the neighbors and see which neighbor has the highest uh, cosine similarity with this representation you have. So in this case, we use the, the ranking that is induced by the similarity in representations. And uh, the missing piece for me is the, the combination. How do you compose the multiple events that are surrounding the, the one you're, that you're predicting? I think if I remember right, we just do a simple averaging that we don't have a model that, we don't have a sequence model that com composes these event representations into a final representation. Yeah, that's that's what I would have guessed too from reading your paper because you the way you you generate the change is by finding nearest neighbors. So it yeah. seems reasonable to like do an average and find the nearest neighbor. Yeah. So how do you see the um, the line of work on a script generation and also like identifying scripts uh, as like uh, a thread of events uh, and how is this related to discourse analysis? There's a lot a, a lot a rich literature on trying to understand the discourse in a document. Yeah, so I think um, definitely there is at the the starting points. I think for both um, types of both problems is really the text that you have. So in some sense, while um, we are learning scripts from text, the discourse organization of events is not necessarily the, uh, the sort of the order or the sort of uh, way in which you would want scripts to be built. Right? So this is sort of, I'm trying to make a distinction that discourse relations are great, right? and they faithfully model how the discourse is present in the text, but it's not clear, uh, in fact, there are many counterexamples you can give for why discourse level ordering or what gets presented in discourse is not necessarily what is useful from a script perspective. Um, so the, the sort of biggest uh, or the clearest example I can give is 
uh, news articles, right? So in news articles, the way information is presented is presented in a way to connect with the uh, news reader in certain ways. You want to establish the context. I mean, there's a specific structure in which a news article is presented. Right? But if you were to sort of uh, infer and do some reverse engineering from that structure to figure out what what is the order in which the events happen or what are the most important things to know about within this event context, it's, there's not a one-to-one -one alignment there necessarily. Um, so I think while they are connected, uh, in the sense that they are using both the same uh, starting points, right, there is, uh, for scripts, I think we need to do uh, much more um, to, to figure out what to extract and what becomes important. And I think from discourse, this, this is not to say that this, uh, this is not to say that discourse is not relevant for scripts. In fact, it's much more relevant because once you understand the discourse relations, I think it's going to inform uh, script generation uh, in, in very important ways. This is something that we have completely been ignoring so far. But I think um, one of the things that we, um, Nate and I have been uh, funded for, uh, for an NSF project on this idea is to actually use discourse relations to improve script modeling. Um, so one thing we don't do now is, you know, simple things like, I shouldn't say simple, but things like co-reference, uh, event co-reference, um, you know, discourse relations, like one is an explanation or a background, these kinds of information. So we've, we're interested in models that can incorporate all these kinds of information, uh, but we are, at this point, we're sort of taking baby steps. So you're saying, okay, given a simple event, how can we model this? Uh, it would be great to think about models that incorporate discourse level relations, either as additional supervision signal or as structures that we can use in, uh, as part of the input going into these models. Great. That sounds like a really interesting line of future work. Uh, I guess I, I see this whole line of script generation, narrative frame induction as super interesting, but uh, not quite ready to be used practically yet. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? So uh, I think it's time that we can start tinkering with these things. So I sort of, uh, I'm, maybe I'm one of these... Uh, uh, newly minted optimists in the deep learning way, but I feel like uh, because you can embed and push things in the same space, we can start sort of extracting utility out of these representations uh, for specific applications. I think we should, my contention is that we should try and I think you will be surprised. Great. Cool. Th thanks for the really interesting conversation. It was nice talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Um, and, and I have some things to think about as you go back.